Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, Julie, have you ever played dead? Have you ever played possum, as they say? Julie. Julie, snap at it. Not, not now. You're not dead. Oh, okay. All right. No, yes. All the time. Yeah? Yeah. Just for fun. We'll take, we'll take me through a, the average day of playing dead around the, uh, the, the Julie household. Well, you know, you just, you're sitting there, you're talking to your spouse, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you just get the blank look. You, you slump over in your chair. And you try to scare them. And you need to know that one of um, the the films that made the biggest impressions on me in my youth was Harold and Maude, ah. in which the main character, Harold... Played by Bud Court. Yes. Yes. He likes to stage the suicide tableaus. So my brother and I, growing up, would, would sort of do this around the household. Well, that's, I think that's a, that's a good activity for kids. Nice, nice morbid uh, uh, way to spend a rainy day afternoon. Well, yeah, especially if you're trying, if you're doing the whole like corpse being dragged away mm-hmm. in a, in a doorway so that all you can see is the legs. Yeah. And you can kind of do this on your own, by the way. There's some tricks here. Hmm. It's, it's great fun for mom and dad. Huh. Well, you know, I didn't see Harold and Maude until I was older, but I, I do remember watching a lot of Sherlock Holmes mysteries when I was really young. And they're, you know, they're wonderful. Jeremy Brett was the Sherlock Holmes. I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch is great, but. But Jeremy Brett was wonderful. So I, I, every episode, of course, would have some sort of murder of varying uh, grisliness. For the most part, one or two wouldn't have a murder. But uh, but I, I never really got into acting them out. But I, perhaps I should have. Well, you know, there's, there is a great value in playing possum. And I wanted to point out that this episode actually comes out on the 42nd anniversary of Harold and Maude. So oh. talking about thanatosis today, this death mimicry, it ties in pretty nicely with that. Yeah, so it begs the question, as humans, are there times when we should play dead? When we should just, you know, lay there on the floor in a crumpled heap or in a nice, you know, stiff, uh, rigor mortis type of position and just hope that whatever is after us will say, oh, well, they're dead, better move on. Yeah, sometimes actually. Sometimes. Yeah. But sometimes not so much. Now, there, there are a couple of prime examples, uh, situations that most of us don't encounter. Uh, where uh, there is a, there the myth is out there that you should play dead, and that's the way you'll survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first of which we're going to discuss is the shark. Now, the shark is of course terrifying. Whether you're dealing with a you know a fairly unrealistic idea that a great white's going to get you at the beach, or you're dealing with a more realistic idea that some sort of smaller shark is going to come after your your toes in the surf. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless. It's something to be fearful of. We don't want to be eaten. And so there's this idea out there, hey, if you see a shark coming after you, just go limp in the water, play dead, and then they'll pass on. True or not true? Not true. Boing. Yes. False. And the reason here is, of course, ask yourself, why would the shark pass you by? Why would the shark say, oh, well, they're dead. I'm, I don't want to eat something that's dead. Have you met these guys? Have you met these sharks? Have you watched Shark Week? You know that they're not going to turn their backs on, on a potential meal just because it stopped moving. Yeah, well, and Louis C.K. has this great bit about how humans don't realize, like, what an upgrade in our existence it is to be out of the food chain. <laughs> and he goes into the shark's perspective and says, hey, 
we don't have a lot of energy to spend here. We already have to swim around all the time. We need to go for the easy stuff. And that's why a lot of times they'll uh, separate an infant from its mother mm-hmm. in the water because that's an easy target. Not much energy expended to go after that. So if you're in the water and let's say a shark is circling you, this is bad news, right? Right. This is not the time to just sort of pretend like you're dead. This is the time to be like, wow, big energy. I'm a big problem. You are not going to want to spend like 30% of your energy <laughs> reserve on me today, buddy. Yeah, and, and think of the shark as a Hollywood producer. People are always saying, oh, why don't they go after some sort of an original idea that really takes us somewhere we haven't been before? Why don't they go for these remakes and the, this, uh, and, and the remake of a remake and another adaptation of this uh, proven concept? That's because it's a proven concept. It's, a, it's an easy catch, and the economics of it are driving the decision. Same with the shark. Yeah. I can eat that uh, that that person that's playing dead there with uh, with little or no uh, added effort, or I can get into some sort of struggle with this thing. Well, and the thing about the shark attacks is that most of them are hit and runs. And right. when I say hit and run, I mean more like hit and take a chunk out of you. And then they realize, oh, this is not a seal or this is not something that I would normally eat. And normally they would retreat. But there are, there are those times when a shark would attack you, and uh, that behavior is very obvious as i said the circling behavior so put up a big fight do not play possum yeah now another area where we encounter this uh, this notion that you should play dead is with bear encounters and the bear is kind of the the shark of the land in that it is a creature that definitely outweighs us outpowers us and it can and does eat us from time to time and uh, you were you were talking just the other day you were in the woods yeah and what were you thinking about I was thinking I don't want – first of all, I'm glad that my daughter isn't with me right now while I'm taking this walk through mm-hmm. the the North Georgia mountains and this trail because, you know, she would be the easy prey, right? Right. And instinctually a bear or some other animal would know that. But then I started to think, oh, God, I can't remember. Do – you know, if a bear comes after me, do I act crazy and ridiculous and do I blow on a whistle that I don't have? Or do I completely retreat and get quiet? Or and punch it, it in the nose. Punch it in the nose because <laughs> – you know, I could do that. Um, but it turns out it depends on the type of bear. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, there are a lot of factors here. One of the big ones, of course, is does the bear have a natural fear of humans? Or has the bear been eating out of garbage cans that are, that, uh, that park rangers have brought out? Uh, when I visited uh, Yosemite National Park uh, um, a couple of years back, they, mm-hmm. they, they went into the history of the park. And there was a time when they would, they would they, everyone would gather around and they would have dumps uh, like you know garbage cans full of scraps from the uh, from the from the from the kitchens and uh, they would beat on the the cans and the bears would come out and they'd feed them and they had a sign that said do not fear do not feed the bears by hand by hand <laughs> by hand but, you know I love that they put the by hand yeah but but if that happens you know you hear this time and time again you feed the bears and the bears don't have a fear of, of humans and that you just have closer proximity to this uh, creature that may eat you yeah, take a bite anyway. And generally, bears really don't want anything to do with you. Um, but the Yellowstone National Park saw human-bear conflict spike in 2008 and 2010 and followed in 2011 by its first fatal bear attack in 25 mm. years. So you see this violence linked to a bunch of factors, habitat loss, human intrusion, food shortages, and climate change. Uh, that's a couple examples. But generally, as we say, they don't want anything to do with you. But I always go back to Cheryl Strayed, who wrote the book Wild. I don't know if you are familiar with this account of her, uh, I think, three-month track through the Pacific Crest Trail, which was crazy terrain. 
and she actually carried a very loud whistle for the purpose of bears because, you know, she knew that that was a real possibility depending on the time of year that she was in certain areas about whether or not they would go after the food that she had or even herself. Yeah, the food is the, is one of the big things, of course. Do you have food on you that's attracting the attention of the bear? And if you, you then encounter a bear while, say, carrying around a whole basket of sandwiches, you probably want to drop that basket of sandwiches. Better to let yeah. the bear have the sandwiches than, uh, than, than fight it away from you. Yeah. Now, if you encounter a brown bear, and this is according to Mother Nature Network, stand tall, stay calm, and slowly reach for your bear spray. You're going to have bear spray, right? Oh, yeah, I, 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 I so. need it by some. Uh, they say, don't worry if the bear stands up. That usually just means that it's curious, and you would want to back away slowly if you could... Um, with your spray at the ready. And if the bear follows you, stop and stand your ground. Now, all of this sounds sort of terrifying to me, just yeah. even that one little like, And it's easy chunk. to say these things, but I'm trying to imagine myself in the woods and a bear either standing up or following me. And I think there would be a very good chance that I would just completely lose it, just like, just make make a break for it and run or be unable to run. Well, and I did read, I think it was the Yellowstone attack. Um, I might have the park wrong, but there were three people that were under bear attack and one of them was killed. And the one that was killed was the one that went crazy and started screaming. Uh, one actually was gored a bit, but she played possum and she was fine. Uh, but that's basically what they're saying here with a brown bear. If it charges you, you know, fall down and you lace your fingers over the back of your neck, right? Because mm-hmm. you want to protect that. That's usually what they go for. Uh, guard your stomach by lying flat on the ground or assuming a fetal position with knees tucked under your chin and don't move. Play possum because the thing is, is uh, they they want to. They're not really interested if you're looking like you're dead, and they don't want to play with you necessarily. Right. But the thing is, you have to play dead for at least twenty minutes because they will hang around <laughs> and make sure. That you're just as boring as you look. Oh. I know, 20 minutes. Yeah, I mean, just 20 minutes with a bear just hanging out, just going to see if you stir and uh, and then eat you, perhaps, if uh, if you do. Yes, yeah. And, I, you know, they go on to say, this really is the best tactic, but, of course, if, if that does not work, then, you know, a big... Uh, slam to the nose to the eyes if they were if you could even manage that would be the last resort yeah i mean at that point if it's you might as well go down with the fight right right you're gonna eat me but i'm gonna make your nose a little sore for a few minutes all right so what else you got what other bears all right black bears same principle you know you see a black bear um do not run away but do stand tall and in this case though you're going to want to create a big commotion so if you have sticks, if you have a whistle, and again, this is why Cheryl Strayed, um, when she was on the Pacific Crest Trail, had her whistle is because she wanted to just scare anything away and really let other animals know that she was around so she didn't accidentally uh, come upon them and frighten them. Yeah, I mean, that's always the thing I'm concerned about when I'm, I'm walking around in the mountains uh, here in Georgia. It's, it's not that, oh, a bear will hunt me down, but I'll just suddenly round a corner and there'll be a bear, and then we just kind of look at each other and... The bear will be like, you know, just shrug and say, well, I guess we got to do this. And then I get eaten. So, yeah, I mean, if you, if it is a black bear, then, you know, you're going to want to try to make as much commission as possible. And then the other thing is, if it does attack you, the best thing to do is to actually try to fend off the black bear. Again, according to Mother Nature Network, not according to Julie Douglas, if this happens and it fails you miserably. Um, so, you know, the idea, again, is that with the black bear, 
that it's going to respond more to you actually fighting back. And perhaps it's more of the idea of, hey, this thing, this person is kind of a pain in the butt. Mm -hmm. Maybe I won't tangle with it. All right. And of course, another big area of humans playing possum, humans uh, pretending to be dead, of course, is when humans are dealing with other humans. Uh, you see this more, for the most part, you see it as a trope that shows up in TV shows, movies, etc. Somebody's in a, generally in a, a, a war situation, and uh, they're on the battlefield, and they play dead, and then they're passed over by the enemy troops. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I meant to say it's a trope, but it also, it obviously it happens, it has happened uh, you know, many, many times in real battles as well, uh, due to varying number of causes. You know, you could be intentionally saying, all right, uh, there's no way I'm going to find my way out of this. I'm going to hunker down. You might be partially incapacitated uh, due to an injury, but you end up to varying degrees pretending to be uh, out of the battle when you really are not. Yeah, I was just thinking about the mall shooting in Nairobi and one of mm. the, the um, people who survived actually employed the the possum method, which was, you know, she covered herself and... And I believe blood and, and uh, actually kind of snuck in underneath someone else and pretended to be dead. Oh. It's horrific to think yeah. about. But this is, I mean, certainly this is not the first instance, as you have pointed out, that this has happened in human history. Yeah, of course, one of my favorite examples of this is it shows up in fiction uh, in a way that doesn't actually um, horrify us in a, in a non-entertaining manner is, of course, Silence of the Lambs. Do you remember the uh, the possum I'm thinking, when it would, uh... uh... A certain, uh, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, um, mauled a, oh, an individual in a right. cell. Yeah. Yes, and then he took their skin off. Yeah, and, and, and in the his... film especially, oh. it was fantastically, uh, uh, utilized. You just really had you on edge the whole time. There was an elevator involved. Well, but, I mean, there's the element of deception, right? Exactly. I mean, that's and that's important. the thing. It's the deception. And that is why uh, it's interesting to note that in uh, in actual warfare and under uh, uh, various uh, national, international um, laws of war, playing dead, especially if you're playing dead with the intention to then kill somebody, mm-hmm. is is against international law. It's against the Geneva Convention. I have a, a bit here, just to, to put it in uh, perspective, from a 1940 uh, uh, JAG book on the law of land war. Uh, and it's from a section that deals with treachery and assassination. Uh, again, to put it in con- like context, that's the, the area where they discuss uh, playing possum. It says, It is the essence of treachery that the offender assumes a false character by which he deceives his enemy and thereby is able to effect a hostile act, which, had he come under his true colors, he could not have done. It is treachery for a soldier to throw up his hands and surrender and then take up his rifle and shoot his captor. A soldier who pretends to be disabled or dead is guilty of treachery if he then uses his rifle. And... The, the idea here, too, is that if you get into a situation where uh, enemy uh, combatants are faking their death and then and then rising up and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and attacking again, then it degrades the morals of the um, of the of, of the the warfare scenario to the point where you just end up having possum squads going around just like shooting everybody in the head uh, and, and instead of, uh, you know, dealing with uh, with uh, with potentially injured uh uh, combatants. It's interesting to, that there are these laws of morality in killing. Yeah. You know, I mean, you look at it this way, and it, it does seem uh, like there is some sort of uh, attempt to structure it to make it uh, less awful, but at the same time, it's still killing. And so it's just an interesting dichotomy. Yeah, we could probably do a whole episode just on 
this weird idea of the laws of war and how and to what if and to what extent it has uh, been utilized in times uh, you know because for instance uh, uh the the absence of not the complete absence but lar- the largely the absence of chemical weapons during the second world war mm-hmm. is a very interesting uh, anomaly following the, its horrific use in the first world war and then of course we see these uh, standardized rules of of uniform combatants we see we see these ideals breaking down as we we enter into a, a stranger uh, high tech but also uh, guerrilla uh, existence of warfare in the modern age. Yeah, I was just thinking about when we talked to doc- Dr. Alan Arkin over mm-hmm. at Georgia Tech, and he was talking about how do you teach machines morality yes. if they're going to be making these autonomous decisions about who to kill and who not to kill. Yeah. It's very uh, dicey territory. Even as a human, can you imagine trying to instill this in a machine? Yeah, I mean, because it, it would make more sense to instill it in a machine if it was fighting, say, uh, uh, you know, the Revolutionary War, or, or some sort of you know very structured old-fashioned land war. But mm-hmm. it makes it increasingly complex as we uh, advance. And, and we've seen this with drones too, with drone strikes. Mm-hmm. And anyway, we yeah. we're way off we're the path off. here, aren't we? Yeah, because we're in this episode, we are talking about playing dead. We're talking about uh, a little something that is often referred to under two terms, and we're going to discuss these terms a bit: tonic immobility. And thanatosis. Yes. And they are confused quite a bit in terms of how you define them and when to use them. Uh, tonic immobility, in my head, I tried to fix this as more a reflex yes. in animals. So um, <clears throat> one definition would be in natural state of paralysis that animals enter, in most cases, when presented with a threat. Yes. Something's trying to eat me. Ah, 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 I can't move. Yeah. Whereas thanatosis would be more like, there's a creature in my midst that's going to try and eat me. I'm going to be real still. I'm going to lock things down. And then after he's not making any more noise, I'm going to move off. Very deliberate, right? And adaptive, too. Right. So I guess that's how you could tell the distinction between the two. I did want to mention that thanatosis in Greek mythology is the personification of death. And the Greek poet Hesiod established that Thanatosis is a son of Nyx, night, and Erebos, darkness, and the twin of Hypnos, sleep. Ah. Hence the beautiful term. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Hypnos because um, this scenario, this uh, Thanatosis, uh, tonic uh, immobility, has been known by a number of different uh, terms, including including death fiending, immobility reflex, contact defense, immobility, writing time, catatonia, playing possum, playing dead, and animal hypnosis. Which just now I'm just uh, thinking about a possum with like a, a watch in front yeah. of it, just going back and forth. Do not let a I do not trust a possum to hypnotize me. I know. That's no good. So we see this in a huge variety of animals. We see it in insects, uh, decapods, spiders, fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, various mammals. Um, and, and that's why why the, the the terminology can get a bit confusing. Uh, we've discussed enough about uh, just the human scenario. What do we choose to do in our lives? What do we deliberately do from our lives? And, and to what extent is it instinct kicking in? When you start making a judgment call on whether this animal is deciding to do something or it's a reflex, th- there can be a certain amount of gray area, especially if you're talking about uh, uh, simpler organisms. Yeah, and this is interesting. Artificial selection experiments have shown that there is a heritable variation for length of death feigning in beetles. Hmm. So, again, that tells us that that might be adaptive. And those selected for longer death feigning durations are at a selective advantage to those at a short, for shorter durations when a predator is introduced. So, again, the idea that it's adaptive among that species. Now, you mentioned the beetles. It, it's interesting that uh, uh, the, the theory is that a number of insects that do this, 
They lock up. They go stiff because a lot of the animals that they're uh, the predators that they're dealing with would be uh, there to eat them whole without any chewing. And if and if you uh, if you straighten yourself out and you just go completely into a star shape, legs uh, akimbo, then uh, then that uh, that swallower may not be able to get you down. Huh. I was just thinking about my cousin who's in the military, and one of the things that he had to do is he was dropped in the middle of nowhere, and he had to eat a live rabbit because that was the only thing that he could a catch. A live rabbit? No, not a live rabbit. I, I should say that oh, good. Uh, it was just one of the few sources of protein that he could find out there in the wild. And uh, what he had to do is he actually had to pet it and uh, before he killed it and slit its throat, because otherwise, it, if it had had any sort of fear, it would have frozen up, and then he couldn't have, it would have made the, the meat chewing very hard to do. So it just made me think about that and the beetle mm. and freezing up and saying, hey, I'm not all that great to eat. Yeah, how are you going to get me down? I'm just all stiff and awful. Yeah. yeah, too bad that rabbit couldn't have exercised a little thanatosis. But of course, with, with most vertebrates, um, Thanatosis is generally best explained uh, under the uh, hypothesis that it has to do with losing the predator's interest, mm-hmm. uh, saying, hey, uh, I'm just this dead, awful thing. You don't want to eat me. I smell horrible. You want fresh meat. You want a fresh kill. You don't want something that's been just been here in a puddle of its own rotting awfulness for, you know, however, how long has, has passed. Well, and I think the iconic example here is the opossum, in particular, yes. the Virginia opossum, Didelphus Virginia. And this is according to Natalie Angier, writing for the New York Times. She says that when faced with a predator, it falls to its side with its mouth agape and excretes droppings in a foul or odor and remains in a death-like state of curled catatonia for minutes to hours until it finally revives, beginning with a twitch of the ears. Yes. And, and that's that's great, right, for an opossum? Yeah. Just uh, completely just puts on the ruse of death, pooping itself, emitting foul old, uh, odors. And it already looks pretty foul. I mean, all fairness to the to, to the possum, but it's, uh, it's a pretty foul-looking creature to begin with. The problem is when it mistakes a car, let's yes. say, an oncoming car for a predator, and employs the thanatosis and then becomes roadkill. Yeah, no, that, that's unfortunate. But, of course, that's really on us, not really on them. Roads screw up the whole scenario for wildlife. Now, it is worth noting with the, with the possum uh, that even though it appears to be in a canatonic state, its metabolic processes are as high as when uh, the animal is fully alert. So in this, we see the possum as another example of this kind of gray area between the idea of tonic immobility as a com- completely non-voluntary reflex mm-hmm. and then the idea of thanatosis as a, a conscious ruse. Uh, it's still an open question. Okay. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing about tonic immobility in sharks, because there is this idea that it is involuntary and that they're taking basically their um, their vitals down to the studs. Yeah. The, the shark thing is really interesting, especially when you're looking at great white sharks, which we already talked about uh, earlier. This is a this is an apex predator. Mm-hmm. This is a, a big deal. So why in the world would a creature like this um roll over and play dead when attacked by an orca. Well, here's the... Okay, we'll get to the orca. <laughs> but there is this idea that TI is a defense mechanism that just is reflexive because they see it uh, more sensitive, sensitive levels of it in female great whites. Oh. And female great whites might do this to avoid mating. Um, the interesting thing about it is that you can induce it hmm. by 
touching certain areas of the great white's body, specifically the nose area. And it's thought that um, it, it's this animal's sense of motor interchange with the environment that causes a limp response. And the animal displays relaxation and muscle tone and deep rhythmic respiration, again, taking those vitals down to the studs. And sharks can enter into TI into less than a minute. And if left alone in tonic immobility, they can remain in that state for up to 15 minutes before eventually riding themselves. So animal trainers will sometimes use this and they'll place their hands lightly on the side of an animal's snout or its eyes. It, that's because there's something called ambuli of Lorenzini. And these are special jelly-filled sensory organs, and they're extremely sensitive. And this enables a shark to detect even the faintest of uh, changes in the electrical fields. And so there's this idea that the animal is saying, something very weird is going on in my electromagnetic field. Let's turn off the lights. So the idea here is that uh, tonic immobility may present itself in sharks as a way to help with the mating. Well, or avoid the mating or avoid a predator. Mm -hmm. Although, as you say, it's odd because they are apex. Yeah. Well, so why would they have that in their, you know, in their DNA unless it's, you know, hold over from, uh, from the past? Right. And the really interesting thing about this is that the orca, the killer whale, is hip to this. Yeah. And it's a highly intelligent animal. Yeah. It says, Oh, really? So you guys do that every once in a while? It, you know, the idea is that they have observed this behavior in great white. Yeah. They say, Oh, there's a, there's more or less a button on your face. And if I push it, you go limp. (laughs) Don't mind if I do. And, uh, and there've been, uh, uh, we've seen this several times. Uh, 1997 in the waters of the, uh, uh, Farallon Islands, a female orca was observed to, uh, hold a white shark upside down for 15 minutes, uh, effectively causing it to suffocate. And there's actually a whole documentary uh, titled The Whale That Ate Jaws uh, that, uh, that dives into this, uh, this, this topic of shark uh, tonic mm-hmm. immobility um, in, in, a, in a deeper way. Yeah, the idea is that it basically goes in really hard and slams into that shark, into the great white, mm-hmm. and then stuns it. And then once they do that, then they can go and they can hit that mark on their face mm-hmm. and flip it over and essentially suffocate it. Wow. And they've actually seen the um, the orcas do this in pods with stingrays as well. And you can see video of this. It's very intentional with the stingrays where they take them. They actually go in upside down mm-hmm. so that they can flip the stingray and render it immobile. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more thanatosis, more tonic immobility, and ducks. And we're back. Is that really the, the plot line for that book? Yeah, that's right off of uh, Audible. Yeah. So, okay. So look, look for that plot line in the next season of True Blood. Yeah, I know exactly what I'm going to look up right after the podcast here. All right, let's talk about 1975. Got eight tracks. We've got uh, all sorts of great uh, BG songs playing in the background. And we have a bunch of researchers with about 50 ducks. Mm-hmm. And some foxes. Yeah, this is a 1975 study uh, published uh, under the title Death Fiending by Ducks in Response to Predation by Red Foxes. Um, as in, not in, as in the comedian, but in, as in actual yeah. red foxes. Uh, and uh, this uh, appeared in American Midland Naturalist. Uh, so yeah, they took about 50 or so ducks and they let the fox have at them. Now, if you're familiar with foxes at all, you know that they, they keep to themselves. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're rarely seen, really. They're, they're sly creatures. And if one gets into a chicken coop, what happens? 
Well, they go after them. Well, and they kill all the chickens. That's the thing. That like the idea of the fox is the fox is not going to go in and say, "Oh, I will have a chicken today, mm-hmm. and maybe I'll be back for a chicken tomorrow." No, the fox is going to say, "Well, I'm just going to take all these chickens, and I can hide some away for later." So that's pretty much what happens when the uh, when the foxes get at the ducks. Uh, they just start they start going after them. And what do the ducks do in retaliation? Well, they play possum. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this, besides the fact that the researchers just tossed these 50 ducks into the cages of these red foxes. Again, it's 1975 at this point. Um, what's interesting about this in that in 60% of those trials, the foxes quit their attacks when the ducks looked to be immobile or dead. Yeah, and apparently it was, the, especially with the inexperienced foxes. Mm-hmm. They were like, whoa, what happened? This duck was alive and thriving, and then I came after it and it went dead. Am I still supposed to eat it? I don't know. The experienced foxes, those are the ones who, who were not fooled by this at all. They're like, all right, go ahead, play dead. makes it easier for me. Well, and that's the interesting thing about uh, that attack with the Great White, mm-hmm. is that when you look at the, the documentary for it, what they say is that that Great White was inexperienced. It should not have been hanging around a pod of white orcas. Yeah. Um, and so that's why it's rare. You don't see that happening very often, you know, orca going after Great White. But experience, as, as always, plays into whether or not, you know, an organism is going to survive. Right. Now, the death faints in these ducks lasted uh, anywhere from 20 seconds to 14 minutes, with the recovery delayed by tactile, visual, or sound cues from the foxes. So is the fox still touching me? Do I hear it? Do I, can I maybe see the fox? Um, and 29 of the 50 ducks survived the initial capture and handling. Uh, you know, they, you know, maybe mouths are killed or stored and stored away later. Uh, but the idea here is that tonic immobility, thanatosis in this, uh, this case with the ducks, Allowed them at least the potential of escaping later, right? And uh, and you know ultimately that's that's what matters. So you're about to be eaten by a fox. What are you gonna What are you gonna do? What makes more sense? What, what from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, like a which is the higher percentage rate of possible survival? Well, Being dead. Yeah, obviously you're probably gonna get some fangs in your neck unless you. Use deception, right? Yeah. So in this, uh, we see highly adaptive behavior. It makes it possible for the duck to potentially escape that foxy death. But the foxes have rolled with the punches. They're smart to this. They're hip to it. So in many cases, they're learning to kill some of the ducks after capture. And they're also adapting appendage-severing behavior so that they can at least <laughs> hobble their, their meals uh, once they, uh, they take them away. All right. So... Next, we should talk about the nursery web spider. And we have talked about sexual cannibalism in spiders, particularly when they are mating. Because we find that sometimes when the female is mating with the male, particularly with the orb spiders, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not only will they say, okay, hey, we're mating, but the female might just chomp off your head and say, I was hungry, by the way. <laughs> so thanks for, for bringing yourself over here. So if you are a male spider approaching a potential mate, and this is uh, from Map of Life, Convergent Evolution Online, it says uh, the mood of that potential mate may swerve from uh, amatory to predatory, and sexual cannibalism is a constant risk if you are a male spider. So what do you do? Well, it helps bring a gift. It's true. Yes. This, the, the male nursery web spiders will bring a silk-wrapped gift mm-hmm. to their uh, potential mates, and uh, there are basically two kinds of gifts. Well, 
aren't there always? There are good gifts and there are bad gifts. Mm-hmm. And in the, the spider economy of things, that means there are edible gifts and there are inedible gifts. A good edible gift well, might be uh, you know insect parts, mm-hmm. you know, the head of a tasty insect, a little gut action wrapped up in that, uh, in, in that uh, little cocoon. But then a bad gift, an inedible gift, might be seeds, mm-hmm. which the, uh, the spiders have no interest in. Or worst of all, this is particularly uh, hilarious, an empty exoskeleton of an insect that the male spider himself consumed. That's that's it's like bringing an empty box of Valentine's chocolates to your beloved and saying, "Here you go." Oh, by the way, I ate all the chocolates in the box. So, what happens when she unwraps that and finds that her nice little protein source is not there? That it was a ruse. Well, you have to have something in your back pocket here. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, guys, we've all been there. This is uh, you know, you know how it goes. You you present uh, you know a potential girlfriend with a gift. You didn't have time to stop off at the store. Yeah, so it's not a great gift. They don't like it. So yeah. what do you do? You fake your own death, and then you try again tomorrow. <laughs> Ask her out again with a different gift, maybe even a better one, because that's essentially what the spider does. If the spider uh, presents, because because. If you don't have a gift in the uh, in the nursery rub spider world, you can still mate, but your chances of mating are significantly less if you if you don't have the gift. And then if you yeah. have the gift, your chances are significantly higher of prolonged mating if that is a tasty edible gift. So right. if things are going south with your gift exchange, if it doesn't look like it's going to work, you uh, you, you faint. You faint. You say, "Oh, I'm dead." You pull a hornburger, fake your own death, and maybe you'll get to do it tomorrow. <laughs> nice thirty rock reference. So the thing is, too, is that if you fake it, if you're fainting there, you're still copulating. Okay, you're just looking yeah. like you're copulating, slumping over, I suppose. Um, and so what this does is it increases the length of copulation. It might also save your life. Yes. So at the end of the day, though, it is an adaptive male mating strategy as well. Yeah, I mean, you could imagine a similar thing working with humans, where the the female says, we're done, and the male says, oh, I'm sorry, I just died. Or, you know, just snoring. Yeah. (laughs) Dr. Sarah D. Octe, she wrote a great little article called Playing Possum, and she talks about the hog-nosed snake in this instance. And she says that it rolls onto its back and appears to be dead when threatened by a predator. And this is great. A foul-smelling, volatile fluid oozes from its body. Oh. I wish I could do this. Um, predators like cats would then lose interest because it smells dead and it mm. looks dead, right? And one of the reasons why it would lose interest, why it wouldn't start poking around, is that that rotten smell might be, uh, you know, as we've talked about this in, in nature, a uh, big, hey, watch out, there could be an infectious disease going on here. Usually that's what we, you know, the sort of disgust that we feel is an innate response against infection or disease. So that's why it works so well in the hognose snake. Because uh, when we talked about vultures in that uh, episode, uh, we did a whole episode on, on buzzards and vultures a while back, we really got into how souped up that organism has to be mm-hmm. to handle a lifestyle of eating dead animals. Because they, they basically have to be disease-proof to a certain uh, extent. So, obviously... Animals that have uh, adapted uh, their entire existence to eating fresh kills are not going to go that route. Exactly. So if the cat can't throw up on it and have a high pH, you know, of yeah. acidity in its stomach, then it's probably not going to consume that snake. Right. All right. So who else does it? Well, uh, interestingly enough, young fire ant workers under attack from neighboring ant colonies. Uh, this, this is really interesting because it's not the whole uh, colony playing dead, but just the, the young 
the young ones, the young uh, uh, members of the uh, uh, of the, the colony. Uh, so the thing is, they can't really contribute much to the defense of the colony because yeah. their mandibles and stingers are not sufficiently hardened to penetrate the uh, external uh, skeletons of the aggressors. Uh, so they're far more valuable, the argument is, in, in the cleanup and rebuilding phase after the attack. So when the uh, when the enemy troops roll in, they just lay dead. They're not getting up and using it as a ruse to then attack. But they're, the, the idea is that they can't really contribute to the defense anyway. Their best use is rebuilding afterwards. Which is brilliant. Yeah. I bet we have another example. Oh, yes. Uh, and this one's really cool because uh, it's a particular fish, the uh, sleeper chichlid, also known as the Liv- Livington Stony. Um, it's named after Dr. David Livingston, the famous explorer. Dr. Livingston, I presume. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll find uh, find these guys freshwater, Africa, widespread in uh, Lake uh, Maui, Upper Shire River, and uh, Lake Malombi. They live in soft, muddy bottoms. And uh, they're solitary. They have this really mottled kind of corpse-like color, and they have they they've been observed to do to pull this uh, this ruse where they mimic a dead fish, you know, on their side toward the bottom, and then when small fish move in to get a bite mm-hmm. to uh, to scavenge, then they wake up and eat themselves some small scavenger fish. So they're they're completely ignoring the Geneva Convention law, right? Yeah, these guys are, are definitely uh, just throwing uh, any kind of uh, moral military law to the wind. Uh, but but it's interesting because it stands out as a as a really interesting example of an animal playing dead mm-hmm. uh, for predatory purposes and not defensive pred- purposes. And you know, I, again, I will go back to Lewis C.K.'s bit about this whole thing about humans being, you know, the apex species and not and getting out of the food chain, and and not having to worry about this stuff. And and he's saying, and and uh, I believe the the show is called Oh My God. He says, you know, we really take it for granted that sometimes we get to die in bed with <laughs> our loved ones around us, uh, while all the other species, for the most part, you know, they've got a pair of fangs in their neck and they're, they're, you know, that's how they meet their end. Yeah. So, you know, you, you think about something like playing possum or tonic immobility or thanatosis. Yeah, of course they would do that. But no, yes, of course you would do that if you were in the food chain. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine having this conversation with my cat, uh, who is, is now an indoor cat, uh, ever since she ran away a few years back. And she's too old to live out there on her own. But we'll have this conversation where she says, I would like to go outside now. And I say, you can't go outside. If you go outside, you're going to die. You're going to get run over. Uh, one of the young feral cats is going to kill you. A dog is going to get you. And her answer would be, well, that's how it goes. That's how you die. That's what dying is about. Eventually, something eats you or crushes you uh, in some way, shape, or form. This idea of dying quietly and peacefully on your own terms uh, in the house, that's more of a human thing. Yeah, and she's yeah. like, if a coyote gets me, a coyote gets me. Yeah, that's part of the thrill. <laughs> so there you have it, Playing Dead for Survival, an introduction. We ran through some uh, interesting examples. And I do want to point out that I was inspired to pursue this topic after meeting a possum with my son at Aware Wildlife Center uh, in the Atlanta area. If you want to look them up, go to aware1.org. They're a federally recognized tax-exempt nonprofit organization of volunteers working to preserve and restore wildlife and its habitat through education and wildlife uh, rehabilitation. So people find like a, an owl that's been injured, they bring it in. They find other wild animals that have, uh, that have that have been injured or abandoned, they bring them in. And uh, and then if possible, they re-release them. And you and they, they depend on donations uh, from uh, supporters. Uh, 
just to give you an example of, of how, where the money goes, like $93, that'll uh, rehabilitate a fox. $113 will get a hawk. $40 a possum, they're a little cheaper. Uh, $86 for an owl, $22 for a rabbit, $6 for a songbird, $51 for a squirrel. Uh, and the, the average cost, though, to re- rehabilitate an animal is $75. So anyway, aware1.org, they're a really good organization in the Atlanta area. So especially for our Atlanta area listeners, if you care about wildlife and uh, those possums wandering out on the road, uh, check them out. Indeed. And, and if a possum comes to call in at your back door because you left some garbage out, don't answer that call. Do not answer the call of the possum. Yeah. yeah. Hey, and if you want to check out more of our stuff, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our mothership. That's where all the podcast episodes are, all the blog posts, all the uh, videos. You can also find us on uh, Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Google+, uh, on YouTube, where Mind Stuff Show. And then what about the good old email? Oh, yeah. You can send it to BelowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.